0: Hi, it's Monday, mo- Monday afternoon already. Uh, I start school next week, so am trying to take advantage. I may have to go out of town, I'm not sure. Try to take advantage of an uh, uh, empty house for the moment. Uh, let's see if we can do one today, next yard uh, type. Uh, before I do anything else, I want to mention that the last year I did, the last podcast, this one, a are both sponsored by the same person, former student of mine, lives far away. I am very careful not to give any details, because I have all kind of people that listen and including all kind of, uh, you know, would-be Sherlock Holmes people, I don't think he wants people to figure it out. But um, I will say, that well, was asked, and happy to accommodate, to dedicate today's podcast or mention them here, give a shout out to... My uh, sponsor is a son who's in med school, listening on his way to medical school. I mean that's kinda cool. <coughs> that's pretty cool. Better than me, he's doing history and medicine. I just mean just, just history. Well, without any further ado, um I was I looked at a bunch of names, give a bunch of names, and I figured I'll do something a little off the beaten track. A little, a little bit, a tiny bit. This week is the art site. Among others, it was a, a um Then, here I'd like to talk today about somebody who's great Tom McCocham. No question about that. Not a rabbi. Most of the people, not all, but most of the people, sort of like uh, by, by nature, by inertia, they end up talking this past year. Rabbonim. When I say rabbonim, I don't mean a guy with smicha, I'm talking about he served in a rabbinical position, usually. And i based in a lot of these people that we talked about what you and I call the gadolin, Most of them, not all, but most of them, occupied official positions in communities, or else they were Rasha Shivas. You know, it's also a certain type of official thing, or something along those lines. And there's a few that even if they didn't, but maybe they hit, they wrote one big safer to hit a home run, and that put them, you know, out there, like the tour or something like I mentioned before. Hit one safer. And that's your ticket to immortality. But um DeMarco Siam ravi Margolis was not a rabbi. Let me ask me, was a gigantic Tom McCalkin, but he didn't serve in the rabbinical post. There's a lot of things he didn't do, and that to me is very interesting. And I'll try to address that if my memory holds straight today, as I talk over here in my office. Uh our hero is uh Someone who lived mostly in the 20th century died in 1970, so not that long ago. And I, I don't remember him. When I was a kid. But, um, and born in 1890 or so, maybe a little earlier. So, somebody lived to be 80 years old. Who was a Galicianer from Lemberg? Long ago I spoke about what's the name? The uh, There was an area called Galicia. This was the southern part of Poland. This is the part of Poland that was annexed to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was ruled by the Austrians, by the Habsburgs. Uh, Kappa, Galicia has a lot of rinky-dinky little nothing villages. People walk around barefoot and ate nothing and all that. Terrific poverty. That's true. But in addition to that, they also had X number of cities, which were very important Jewish centers from hundreds and hundreds of years. And the, the Galicia, broadly speaking... Is in the left part and the right part, the the, the uh, I guess the western half and the eastern half. Not that that means much to a lot of you, but I'll put it out there anyway. And the western half was Polish, and the eastern half was really Ukrainian, although the Poles ruled. And this is part of the old kingdom of Poland Lithuania that I spoke about in the summer. And to make a long story short, the two capital cities are Irv Ames Viesrol, or Irv Israel. Krakow is the capital of the west and Lemberg in the east. So these are places that had Gedolim. I mean, Gedoli Gedolim in the 1500s. I would say a fair number of people you see on the side of the Shulchan and such things. The tour in the Shulchan Arche come from Krakow, Lemberg, and cities like that. Uh, the three big centers in Poland were Krakow, Lemberg, and Volna, And maybe one or two others. Uh, and so if you talk about somebody who's in Galicia but is from Lemberg, you're not talking about somebody from a shtetl. There's a certain sophistication, and that's key to the element of who our hero was. He was born in 1890, 1889 perhaps, at a time, just before the First World War, the historians call this the fin de siècle, the end of the era. These are, quote-unquote, the last good years, before everything went down in a handbasket. This is particularly true on the view of the Galicianos. Uh My predecessor, long ago Rabbi Hertzberg, uh, with a God's honor, and uh, they always look back to the years before the First World War, the golden years. Now, Lemberg was a city that went through the 19th century and experienced all the powerful forces of modernity, the Jewish community I'm talking about, and the Geist, but I'm talking about the Jewish one here, and reacted in a wide variety of ways, which makes a fascinating place to have lived. I, myself, a couple years ago, back in 2017, was in Lemberg for a couple hours when we went on that crazy trip. That was really something to see, because it's a beautiful city, which I didn't necessarily expect. As Germanic built, like because the Austrians ruled here, and they, they tried to build it as a mini Vienna. It's so big, imposing buildings and fancy opera houses. Even the synagogue was hush of looking, even though they destroyed most of the shows in World War Two. But, you know, it was impressive. Now, Jews lived here forever, meaning since the beginning of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in around 1500 or so. Just off the top of my head, the smile with the rabbi in uh, Lemberg. You see? Like that. But many others. Chacham Tzvi, whatever. Now, um, in the 1800s, the modern era, if you're Jewish and living in Lemberg, so there are a lot of pressures over there to become unfrum and modernize European eyes. And if you're talking about a Jewish population, I don't know how many tens of thousands, some are going to go to the left, some are going to go to the right, and some will be in the middle, and some will be up and down, over, and around, and through. Very typical of the um, uh rich Jewish culture of a screwball variety, perhaps. Now, what I mean is, some people will become totally not from, and they'll assimilate. But then the question is, what do you assimilate to? If it's the 19th century, the Austrians are willing to become German-speaking, trying to assimilate to the Austrians. It's up to them. Maybe they give a job or something like that. Or, alternatively, you might say, no, the ruler, the upper class here, besides the Austrian rulers of the Polish nobility, you want to Polonize yourself, you want to make yourself like Polish, pick up Polish culture. Many did that. And I would throw in that, all this has to do with our heroes, don't worry, I would throw in that the Austrians made a university in Lemberg, this university was the headquarters of German culture, many Jews attended it, the Poles eventually, there's a lot of politics, I'll skip all the politics, you know. Under the, the Poles strove for a cultural maximum cultural autonomy under Josef and he gave it them for certain reasons. And so it was a Polish university. You understand? So you have a large university, an important one, part German, part Polish. Which, which way do you want to go? Yeah, uh, those kind of assimilated Jews, who totally you know, Polonized or Austrianized, whatever the word is. Then you have what you, we would call a Reformed Jews. There was a Reformed Jews, Judaism. You think the only temples were in Germany, but they're called this, right? Lemberg was a temple. Matter of fact, I believe, you'll be surprised to hear this. If I remember correctly, the brother of the, uh, what's his name? The Rasharov, you know, Levin, Lewin, you know, not Nate Lewin's, I guess, great uncle, not what Kabbal, Adrashva the big gone. his brother was a former rabbi in the, in the temple in, in, in Lemberg. You yeah, it's not what you think with a choir, with an organ, with the ganze business. mixing thing, everything. So, Lemberg is not your typical city. On the other hand, there's a ton of from Jews also. Okay. You have, believe it or not, in the heart of Galicia, you have the old misnagdom, like the, uh, what's the name, like the Shalom meaning, they're not out to stamp out Hasidim because the Hasidim are all over the place. They outnumber them 100 to 1. But they try, keep up Minigashkenaz, uh, you know, uh, what's the right word? Present a cultural model, which is like pre-Hasidic. Like the Sholem Isha, you know, just learning, love this. And this will be very interesting how it plays out in the, in the story of my in my opinion. And all you ever get is my opinion. Then, of course, you have the Hasidim. Um, I might remind you, if you, you care, that uh, when the Sholem with with the rabbi in Lemberg, he wouldn't let the, the, the bells the rabbi come in. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because angry him or something. But there was plenty of Hasidic stuff. I mean a ton in Lemberg. The Poles call it Lvov. And today it's a part of Ukraine, not Poland, because really the mass population was not Polish, just the upper classes. So the mass population, how many was Ukraine. Today's part of Ukraine. And they don't call it Lvov, they call it Lviv. So depending on how you say, are you saying Lemberg? Are you saying Lvov or are you saying Lviv, you know? It's like that. But <laughs> in time of Margo is something they call it Lemberg. And uh, he, see, you have the haskalah, love flourishing. Here's something very interesting listen closely. In the University of Lemberg, which was an important Polish university, um, you could go there and get a PhD. In the late 19th century, early 20th century, a PhD was very chashev. The Jews, whether they approved of somebody going to college or not, they said, oh, we finished, we got a PhD. Yeah. Somebody very, very important, and uh, a lot of people went there. The number one cultural department over there, that was the uh, the cool subject, learned history, because Poland was in the process of constituting its national identity through the cultivation of a certain narrative of Polish history. hope that's not too complex for you. And uh, therefore, if you're Jewish, a lot of young bright Jews will usually be not from, and they'll go to the university in Lemberg, and they'll specialize in Polish history or something like that. Some of them will even specialize in Jewish history, but from a very Polish point of view. There's a guy, Balaban, very famous for that. So you have that. And again, keep that in mind when I talk to him about him, And then you have uh, people who Germanize, and then you have good old-fashioned Haskalah, which was very powerful in um, in Lemberg. But the Haskell over there would be the, like the second wave of the Haskell, or what they call the Haskell of with a very heavy emphasis on Jewish history. And the Margossium, in, in my opinion, would be classified, if such a thing is possible, as a Haredi Moscow. Now, most of you, you say, I like guess, Haredi in Moscow is a is a target of the is oxymoron. I get it. Because you're thinking of Moscow in a very narrow sense that Moscow equals automatically on from. Not necessarily. Uh, I always say that Moscow should be defined as your interested in something other than Gomorrah, Gomorrah, Gomorrah. In other words, you could be totally interested in Gomorrah 23 out of 24 hours a day, but if one hour a day you say you should devote in principle to other things besides Gomorrah, it's, it's, it's a Moscow already. That's very different than somebody's atheist like a Haran So a covers a very wide range from extreme left to extreme right. Our hero would be on the extreme right. Maybe in Moscow. Okay. Now, having said that, here's somebody who's born around 1890. In the last good years, he's about 25 or so when World War I breaks out. So his youth, young years are spent in like a golden era. Because the, under Franz Josef, the Austrians were good to the Jews. The Poles weren't crazy on him, but they left him alone. The Jewish community was thriving. The Jews were fighting always at each other's throats over, uh, which I say, hush questions. That's what Jews do. So it's Zionism versus anti Zionism, Aguda versus Mizrahi, Communism versus thisism and thatism, the Bundists, this, is that, the assimilation, reform, consider everything you want. It's like a chong. Every type of Jewish activity was cooking in Lemberg and thriving. Okay? So, um here's a young boy who grows up in the eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundreds. I remember his father died when he was young. A lot of your famous Gadolum are like that. And um, Therefore, he is an autodidact. This is not somebody. That's why I call Charedi maskil. A Moscow is usually somebody without a systematic education. You taught yourself. In Galicia, they weren't necessarily yeshivas in the same sense that they were institutionalized in Lithuania. You know, the Telz yeshiva, the Sabaki yeshiva, kind of institutionalized. In uh, Galicia, wasn't really, They had some, but it really more like a personal thing. People go learn by this guy or that guy. And many, many people, even down to the First World War, still kept it. The old traditional system that I've spoken of many times, which is no yeshiva at all, you learn in your local synagogue. Whatever you want, mashli And, you know, if you're bored, get out of there and go out and work. If your heart is really into learning, learn it up. What do, you, what do you learn? Whatever you want, baby. You're into halacha? Get a charusa with somebody if you can learn halacha. You're into Ian? Do that. You're into Bikias? Do that. In Galicia they're famous for the Bikiyas, and our hero definitely is a chip off the old block, became a super Bucky, and I would say, in general, all Torah literature. That's quite a statement I just made. I mean, Shas, Roshonim, Machronim, I don't know about the Shas and Shavu Halacha literature, he has stuff on Shulchan Aruch, but it's not where he put his efforts, which is just interesting. Uh, And Zohar, and things like that. Um... And this is who he is. Now, he starts, as I said before, there was a group of what you would call Haredi Masculin. How would they express their Haskalah? And they're totally from, beyond from. How would they express their Haskalah? What are the subjects you write on? A lot of these guys wrote on history, Jewish history, in Hebrew, in rabbinic Hebrew, and usually um, about the famous rabbis in some communities, uh, there's a whole genre of this. There's probably a hundred books like this, and they're all very interesting. Uh, who, who are masculine, who, remember they, they had no formal education, they picked up the education on their own. The, the Jewish education and whatever secular education they picked up. If they knew Polish and German and they picked this stuff up, they picked it up on their own. If they learned math or history or things like that, they picked it up on their own. Chop, plop, unsystematic, that's what a masculine is. And some did better and some did worse. That's exactly what Margot Siam is. repeat, repeat, he was super from, and even though his father died young, but he learned up a storm. But, you know, Galicia, there was no, uh, what should I say, social welfare state. There's no, uh, uh, you know, what, what's the right word? No social security, no unemployment insurance, no safety net. And so he had to work for a living to support his family In an early age. You know, just make Paranormal. And so here's somebody... His mom was in Moscow, you know, he doesn't have the luxury to go to Yeshiva and this and that and the other. But he learns at night. So you work all day. But you can put in the time at night, you go to a local basement. And I know exactly who this guy was. In other words, I imagine in my mind, no, he was. He went to hawk with these other guys like himself. You hawk. And you talk in this learning, and you talk talking there's guys you hawk with in Lumdus, and there's guys you hawk with in history. Right? I've seen this a lot of times. Some people try to do that with me. Yeah, this is what they like to do. It's fun. Okay? And he learned up a storm. And um, I think he wrote the first... And, and, and to prove my point, what's the first thing? He wrote a biography of the marshal, Which is classic. The marshal a rabbi, as you know, in the 1600s in Poland. Not too much was known about him. A little bit was. Another Moscow recently had written a, a piece on him, Hardetsky. And so our hero, Hardetsky, wasn't so from... So I can tell, I can see I'm going to say, like no, this is the, I'll give the full treatment over here, because a regular historian, Moscow, Kardec, usually Mars, I see arts, in the, in the, in the, you know, close sense. You know, you didn't go through a whole much show, but I did. <laughs> I went through, gone through my show, That's what he would say. Plus, I went through all the shelves and shoes. And the record, that's a galaxy honor. But you actually read everything. There's a whole genre of these things. Uh, there's uh, Kiryan and the of written by the community of uh, Vilna, by, uh, what's that name? Rashi Finn, and then there's that eared uh, uh, or something like that about the Rabbonium uh, in Krakow by Dembitzer, and there's Told the Sanchez by Buber, which is about the famous Rabbis in Lemberg by Shlomo Buber, and our hero wrote Hagos on that, you know, and when I say goes, what they like to do, especially God's honors, is tell you the whole family. This guy had three sons, and they had three daughters, and, you know, they married this one and that one and the other. That's the old-fashioned way of doing it. This is what we call the masculine history. Now, in the case of our hero, when he's 25 years old, the First World War breaks out. Uh, I did a series on this a couple years ago. It's online somewhere. Videos. The Austrians and the Russians fought it in, in gigantic battles, full of death and destruction. The Russians actually captured Lemberg. Wherever the Russians went in 1914, they killed the Jews, they raped the women, they pillaged and burned. It was just terrible. It just terrible. We don't think about it today because the Holocaust made it worse. But it was just terrible what the Tsar's army did. And so a million Jews, half a million Jews, Alhambra many, fled from Galicia, from Lemberg, from the whole place, from Belz. And they ran all the way into the rear, into Hungary and into Austria, many of which, like 100,000 or more, fled to the city of Vienna, including our hero. He ain't the only one. Sars so Schneer ran away like that to Vienna. Joseph Engel, for example, ran away like that Vienna. Or Mayor Arik went away. You know, a lot of... too, if you went to Vienna, the years 1914, 15, 16, 17, even 18, you'd see a ton of Jewish beggars and people, you know, living in five-to-a-room and all that. It was a tough time. And he was there... And let's put it this way. A soldier you don't want to be. This guy's a scholar. And uh, the whole long story... After two years, he had to go back, and they said he was going to get drafted, and the rabbi in Vienna tried to get him out of the draft, because in Austria, you know, that's the the, the, the the happy hunting ground of protexia, you know, if you know the right people, you know what they say in Israel, if if you know the right people, you don't need protexia. <laughs> that was the all-strong-dearing empire. But I remember, they came back and they wanted to draft him, and th- this is very typical, this is 1917, I think, 18 for about a year, until the war was over. He did not come out. He hid in the cellar. You know what I'm saying? He was sitting in the cellar because they were looking for draft dodgers, which he was, uh, because who wanted to fight in the Austrian army? Even though the Jews were loyal to Francis, the generals in the Austrian army were terrible, and they wasted their lives in a minute in unbelievably capricious fashion. Uh, it's a shame. And I remember he, he said he was sitting and learning uh, with you know, at the bottom of a cellar, couldn't even have a candle, looking through the cracks of the door. You you understand what I'm saying? Because imagine, it's a torture. I mean, you don't want to get caught and arrested and drafted or shot. On the other hand, you know, you're you're in somebody's cellar and, you know, it's like Anne Frank, you know, and nobody can ever hear you there. And you're an active mind, a guy like him, you know, like, you can't read anything, learn anything. I, I forget how he did it. And then the war was over in 1918, but the truth is, If you know the history of Lemberg, then started another round of wars, another four years. There was a very famous pogrom in 1919, I think. This is so classic. uh, That broke out by the Polacks in Vienna. I mean in Lemberg. Listen to this. The Austrians pulled out, because the Austrian Empire ceased to be after World War I. So you had two groups and one in Lemberg. The uh, Poles and the Ukrainians. And you got Jews there. So then the question becomes like this. Okay, Jews, you large community... Are you siding with the Orioles, or are you siding with the Yankees? If you side with the Orioles, the Yankees want to kill you. If you side with the Yankees, the Orioles want to kill you. you know? Are you siding with the Ukrainians? Siding with the Poles. Make an enemy from the other side. As far as the Jews are concerned, if you ask them, because I guess you can both drop dead now, right? <laughs> but you my guess. Heck with all of you. So, broke uh, got the Poles are very, what's the right word, sensitive about this today. They say it was the Jews' fault. There's a lot of literature on this, by the way. A lot of literature. To this day, the Poles are saying, wasn't our fault the Jews caused it and all this, which is all bull. Anyway, whatever the case is, eventually things quieted down. And Poland took over and ruled it in the 20s and 30s. Until, of course, Hitler came along and they killed everybody. So our hero then is now 30 years old, about. And he spends the next 15 years living in Lemberg. What do you do for a living? Now, he got Smicha somewhere along the way, and like I said before, there's no question with was a gigantic Chacham. It's not even a question. I mean, unusual. Right? All of his life will be characterized by being a Harf and a Bucky, with the Galatianer Charifas, which means, since they know so much, they read so much, they can still to this to that. You know what I'm saying? Oh, this question in Tosus, it reminds me of a ritual over there, which was quoted by the Marsha over there. You know, that, that kind of way of knowing it, and making the connections. And that's exactly who he was. So, the answer is, if you're not going to become a rogue, there are very few of those jobs, it's all, you know, protects you, you know, how it goes. Uh, what's the right word? You know, meritocracy, it's not. It's uh, That's why the rabbi often in Eastern Europe often was a mediocrity, not mer- meritocracy, because it's a politics. And, you know, he comes from a Hushab family, my goal is a Hushab family, He was poor as a church mouse, and him, his wife they didn't have any kids. And so the long and the short of it is, he made a bookstore, <laughs> right? See here we're paying tribute to a certain type. In the case of Mark Asiyam, he's like the apotheosis of this. Throughout Jewish history, we've had the phenomenon of Mochre farm. Right? I mean think about I'm I'm asking an interesting question. Where did Rashi go to buy his books? Well you say at the time of Russia, there was no printing press. That is true. But where did he get a hold of other manuscripts that we can make a copy out of? Somebody had a store. and I didn't have a store in the American sense now. You got a beagle or something like that. That they were itinerant people, and that's how they made a living throughout Jewish history. They've been what we call Makhiswarm. Of course this was intensified after the printing press. And by the time you get to the it's every Indian we we have, you know, historians and antiquarians can show you catalogs from the fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred seventeen hundreds of put out, you know, by these uh booksellers, Jewish booksellers. There's a whole literature on the geese guys in Italy. And it's very interesting. And I would say like this. Mokers farm fall, in my mind, into two broad categories. It can fall into many categories. I'm talking two broad categories. A and B. One are people that don't really know their wares. Somebody once said, I forgot who it was, he says, this guy is a big Tomachokom. He knows the first four blot ever, of every everything Yeah? Four so blot. Which is in Madrid also. At least you can hop to some degree with the potential buyers. And then you have once in a while guys that actually know their wares. Now, if you have a guy like Ruben Margolis, and he has a Mochus farm store in in Lambert, a real store, you realize a guy would come in, and basically he knows every he knows by heart every saver in the place. That's not an exaggeration. And so, what happens? I'll tell you: what happens. This guttle or that guttle makes his business to come to Lemberg. They come and they say, "I'm interested," you know, I don't know, and He talks to Margolis. They say, Oh Orsamech." You know, he has a kiddush like this, and this guy said I guess next thing you know, they're sitting in hockey and learning for six hours. I'm not exaggerating, because the Recher's is up there in the same league as the big rabbi. You understand? And he obviously loves this stuff. This this is meat and potatoes. On the other hand, so in other words, it's an interesting career profile for someone who loves farm, is a huge Tamil chacham, is very from, but is not a serving rabbi. So what what kind of career do you have that enables you to, you know, have your hand in all this? Now, meanwhile, he published after the war what I would call the Ruben Margolis type of book, of which he wrote many. The Ruben Margolis type of book is usually small, and it's usually consisting either of biographies or of uh, uh, footnotes on classics. This became his, his specialty and forte. And that one makes this stuff famous out of Yamazet, for those that know. He clearly was living in Lemberg, as they said before. And the masculine side would be, he's very into Jewish history. I know these guys. Whatever you want to say, they read all the trade stuff. They always got all the magazines of, you know, Jewish Theological Seminary, and this thing, and that thing, and whatever. I'm talking about to read the book reviews, and the scholarly articles. They're into that. Now that's not all. in intro. I, I'll say it again. They're super from. but they would go braid. You know what I'm saying? And questions about Jewish history and, and Jewish antiquity are fascinating to them. Particularly when you see this professor wrote this, or this Moscow wrote that, and you know that he's right or wrong or something like that. Uh, I'll say what I said before. The whole—he's not the only. There's a whole bunch of people like that. But most people, these people, are mostly forgotten today. Just off the top of my head, jumps to my mind. The guy who wrote this the biography of the note of Yehuda, uh Kamulhar. Called Mofi Sador. It's a very interesting, it's a thin book just like rumor Rumar It's packed full of historical information. I wouldn't say all of it is accurate, but a lot of a whole lot of it is. it's a solid work of scholarship. You understand? Know and someone else wrote told us so, on no, the Yamson you know, Abschutz, and someone else told the Panay Yeshua. You know, you had these types of people. The Rumor is from the genre. Being that he's interested in the study Jewish history, a guy like this. Should, this is the type of person who should have gone to college. You understand? He had that in and he would have stayed from, and he would have been able to use the training to do things in a, what should I say, a, a, a highly disciplined manner. But even though he didn't go to college, he read so much of the stuff he knew how to do it. And so he will publish these biographies full of footnotes. This is the old-fashioned, muscular biography. is two lines of uh, text, and a hundred lines of footnotes underneath Owen Rabbi Kala Paris, Aram Ben Arambam, he published the Aram Ben Arambam's book, the Milcham HaShem, in which he defends his father, the Rambum, against, uh, what do you call it, against the uh, people who say the Rambam wasn't from. I spoke about that when I did Abraham Maimani's long ago. Um, You know, uh, who else did he do? You know, a, a lot of these are famous, uh, Gadolim of the past that ordinarily you wouldn't hear of. I think that was like his, uh, his, specialty that's that's what it would seem to me um uh, you know whatever and 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 they're of that masculine type this is a certain type of genre you just have to be familiar or not familiar with it and they would write about important rabbis that that historians didn't pay attention to because most of the historians were were not Chacham at all the opposite and so how could a guy you know who's a professor somewhere doesn't have learn how could you write a biography of the noted? I mean, you know, ordinarily. How could you even attempt to do that? It would be so superficial, so ridiculous, it would come out, you know. But somebody who does know and also understands history to a basic degree can do a lot of stuff with that. And uh, he did it on the, the you know, people like that. Unusual figures. And this becomes, what shall I say? A characteristic of this maskelic type, they call pazran, which means he never concentrates in one area. You do a little of this, you do a little of that, you do a little of the third thing. They scatter their, their their kochas in a lot of small different directions. It's, it's it's an interesting phenomenon, as opposed to somebody who says, "I'm going to write the Bay b'tambudit." I'll give you an example. I'm going to do That's a gigantic project. I'm going to write the Stecheme. That's a gigantic project. That's one. That's that's what we call a. A zone, somebody concentrates on one big thing. Rambam was like that. And then you have the people who write a hundred different books on totally different, separate, disparate topics. Topics, they're interesting. You know, they're good. But you don't leave that kind of Roshan behind. That, I think, was the case with uh, the, Ruben Margolius. Um, he wrote on the Balitosis. And so if you go online, I bet you a lot of these things are in Hebrew books. If you're interested. Now, the the plus is... That he's unbelievable yodea. And uh, he could, you know, um, connect all kinds of dots without a question. Um, but you have to do a lot of these readings of these little thin books. Uh, it's also clear to me that he's very reactive. If, I'll tell you something, he wrote a lot of these um, essays. Four, five, ten pages, sometimes less. Years ago, I bought them all. You can get them now with blue cover from The um Gisoda Mishnah He has essays on the, how the Mishnah was put together. Many years ago when I first did the Shriragon eventually the article published, but I wrote it up long, long ago, long, long ago. So I was into Gonic uh, chronology and trying to figure out the history of the Toshwalapet to the degree that we have anything on that. And so I read all these little obscure things. This person cheaped on how the Mishnah was written, and that person cheaped on how the it, it was written. The from the non from this and that and the other. So he he that's who he was. And he has his kenesh on how the Mishnah was written. And his Khidish. And usually it's a thing. but you could read it today with great profit. Okay? The essays so are not that long, but he'll also have an essay on, you know, uh uh geography names in the Mishnah. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Or about women in uh, the Gemara. or you know, all all, all those type of topics which are classic Wissenschaft and Haskalah Type topics once before, except it is done by a serious Talmud who can bring in all the Marimakos you can just imagine. It's either you like it or you don't. I like it. You know, it's a this it becomes a a, a, a a very characteristic of the scholarship of that period. So I'm, today, I'm not talking about somebody's a regular rogue but I'm talking about somebody who represents what you call secondary intelligence. Yeah, that's what they call it in history, which is the people who write a lot, have you know, a lot of machshavas, but they don't play central major roles. Like secondary roles, uh, and I would also say a big characteristic of his is to bring marmocones from all over the place. Now, eventually, his wife passed away. He wasn't old, I would say he was 45, something like that. He lives to be 80, so uh, he made Aliyah. Now, that's interesting in 1934 35. Ruth Margolis was in the Mizrahi. This is extremely unusual. In Eastern Galicia, I mean, you had Mizrachis and all that. You did. The Pole comes from Eastern Galicia. I'm not the Pole Aguda. Pole That's what I meant to say. But, um, but they're called the big Talmud Chacham, usually with the Aguda types. Uh, but remember, he was sort of not a rabbi. So he could do, He could say whatever he wanted. And he was a Zionist. Get over it. You know what I mean? And therefore, it's not surprising if he was already in the 1930s. And he wants to make Aliyah. You know, it wasn't hard to get into Israel. He had to get a certificate. For him, the Mizrahi will get a certificate. He got to into Israel. You're 45 years old. You're an accomplished person. What do you do with the rest of your life? He lucked out. He's a book person. He also likes to hawk, though. I mean, he's not a Garrett scholar. He's a book person that's a pleasure to talk to if you're holding in the union. But you're going to be in a room scattered with sperm all over the place. And you're pulling him out of the shells and, you know opening them and closing them, that's who he is. So when he came to Palestine in like 1935, I think it was, right when Rav Cook died, so um, you had over there, it was the, it was the um, anniversary of the death of the Ramba Maimonides. The Rambam died in 1135, so this is 1935. And believe it or not, in 1935, all over the world, Jewish uh, groups, from and not from, made Maimonides year uh, Now, I understand it's not a firm thing. but Nevertheless, happened. And they wrote books and essays and this and that and the other and conventions and gatherings and who knows what. So one of the things they said was we're going to make a a firm library in Tel Aviv. This is actually a good idea. I wish they had it in Baltimore. Um, a firm library... With the library as a center for people who just want to go in and do independent scholarship, not to take books out. Uh, a lot of part of who I am has to do with the fact that they used to have in Baltimore something called the Baltimore Hebrew College. There were about ten of these in America. There's Gratz College in uh, Philly, and there's a Hebrew College in Boston, and there was one in the Cleveland, one in Chicago, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> What were the, these are things that were started you know, about 100 years ago by non from and the idea was to offer an alternative Jewish education not a yeshivish. Uh, so no, it's the, the teaching was not from. But what you did and their hope was one day to become a mamashah college. And one of the things they did was you imitate a college and get a real library, an academic library. And so these places came, like in Baltimore became the place in which you know they have funding from the uh, Federation or something like that, and they got a library building, and they collected Jewish material from all over the place, uh, far from, uh, from not from our scholar stuff English Hebrew German, you know what I mean anybody anything really on Jewish subject uh depending on on how big the how good the collection was uh they got it, so what that means. There's a before the internet. If you know about these places, or you don't know, but if you know about the place, you can go to one of these places. And they had in Baltimore, by the time I came along, it was already in decline because none of these schools could really offer an education that would attract the not from. The only thing they could do in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s was attract the from and make them unfrom. That's that's the bottom line. They say to attract the from students because they were Jewish. But they would make them on from it, teach them Bible criticism and all kinds of things like that. But meanwhile, each one had a library with tens of thousands of books. So you don't usually see this somewhere. And that means if somebody wants to go to a building in this town, in which you have all the Jewish encyclopedias, uh, the English ones, Hebrew ones, the German ones, and that sort of thing, all the magazines not the stupid magazines, I'm talking about the scholarly magazines, you know what I mean, that are put out with the important articles on all areas of Jewish scholarship, whether it's history or, or you know, uh, literature or philosophy, whatever you want, such as exist, uh, put out by this institution, that institution, this university, the Jewish Theological Seminary, the, the YU, the Hildesheimer Seminary. They used to have a whole literature of these things, and that's where a lot of the scholarship was published. No, that's where a lot of information was, I mean, a ton, or yearbooks. I'm talking, not high school yearbooks, I'm talking yearbooks, which are, have scholarly articles and, and statistics in them and things like that. And the bottom line is like this here's one Malcolm that has all these things. Now, where else do you get? There's nowhere else do you can get this. You know what I'm saying? No else do you can get this. I'll just give you one example. I'll put a from spin on it. The Most Rough Cooks had a, a, a journal with all kinds of scholarly stuff in it, and the Most Rough Cook is a from. It's Mizrahi, called Sinai. They have a ton of great articles in there. Some good, some not good. You know, what I mean by that is some better and some worse. But a ton of stuff. It could be, uh, you know, Gemara stuff. It could be history stuff. It could be, uh, you know, literature stuff. You name it. A wide variety, scholarly journal. It's been around since the 1930s. So I just pointed to one. And it's put out by the of cook. Where do you get it? <laughs> right. You're in Baltimore, you're in Lakewood, you're in this place. Where do you where do you get it? Yeah? You know? Are you one of the extreme weirdos you go count on your finger that actually orders it? You know, that you can count on your finger how many people in America actually subscribe. It's not that type of thing. So where do you get it? The answer is if you go to the Hebrew library or whatever they call in your town, if there was one, they'll have a whole collection, because that's what libraries do. So in addition to the books, they keep you up on the scholarly literature and they they have the room to collect hundreds of these uh issues, you know what I mean? And volumes and so on and so forth. And this is how historical research and scholarship was done. It's one of the ways. One of the ways. Very important way. This is called a Hebrew library, not in the sense that you have a bunch of farm in your house. And it's not Yeshivish, because Yeshiva is very narrow. See, she was only interested in a very narrow certain type of, of safer. Correct? That's how they self define I'm talking about somebody much different. So By the time I was growing up, you know, basically the library was empty most of the time. I could go read whatever I want over there, see whatever I want. You you pick up a ton of information that nobody even knows exists. It's there. It's open to public. Anybody can do it, but nobody does it. Okay? And this had its day. Now, nowadays, a lot of this is replaced by the internet. Not all, but eventually it will be. You know what I'm saying? eventually everything that's out there is going to be photoed sooner or later and put on the internet. And that's to, you know, that's already revolutionized things. You could be living in Kukumanga and write a, a commentary on a khulun, you know what I mean? If you know where to look on the internet, uh, that's a new, that's a new reality. You know, that's the 21st century, not the 20th century. Okay, so back to our hero. In 1935, they said they're going to establish a library like this with a firm spin on it, meaning collect all the scholarly stuff. When I say scholarly, uh, you know, anything involved Jewish studies. But, but at the same time, the institution itself is going to have a, a from-tom, shall we say. It's not only for from-people at all. From-tom, they called the the Rambam Library, Sifria the Rambam. And uh, the hope Today they have 100,000 volumes. So the, the hope was... It's in Tel Aviv. The hope was it would turn into a place where people come there. Now, it's not a place to borrow books. It's a reference library. And so, you walk into these places... Um, you can do this in Hebrew today... Walk into each place, and you see people sitting there reading all day long. You see him reading all day long. They could be reading this, they could be reading that, whatever. And he became the head of it. I mean, the guy was a widower, uh, unfortunately, he didn't have any kids. He was this huge brain. He knows farm like nobody's business, he knows farm better than anybody else. Is a perfect job, perfect job. And you know, let's put it this way anybody who's a Talmud Chacham or a, or a scholar or a historian. Who come in and he knows who you are? You can sit and hawk for, for for ten hours, <laughs> right? And whatever it is, it could be about the Zohar, it could be about the uh, you know uh, Bible criticism. I don't know. He's holding in everything, and so he became the head in the last thirty five years of his life until he retired anyway of this famous uh, Rambam Library, and he collected all the books for him and made it a, a big mukdam of the type of very interesting scholarship that I just described. It's not a Yeshiva. Right? There's not a trade place either, you see. It's in the middle. That's a very interesting uh, profile. While he was in Israel, and he was a he was a Zionist, okay, so basically for a guy like him, it's as good as it could get. And given the, the circumstances of his life, you no know, family and so forth, this is as good as it could get, except I'm sure you know, uh, Tel Aviv to live in in the summer is a bummer and a half. I don't know how he did it. Uh, in other words, this is before the air conditioning. That's the one downside. But other than that, you're an all-Jewish city. All you see is Eden. You know, uh, Tel Aviv, once upon a time, I'm not talking about the Tel Aviv of today. I'm talking about the Tel Aviv of yesterday. 100 years ago, 90, 80, 70 years ago, all the big Hasidic Rebbes, when they fled from Hitler, they wanted to go to Tel Aviv. Why not? You were flying. I seen too many damn churches in Europe. I don't ever see any geish stuff anymore. That was the attitude. They're so disgusted from the pogroms, from the Holocaust. I don't see nothing geish. I wanna be in an all Jewish city, see only Jews, even Mikhal Shabbos. So the north is all dangid, you know what I'm saying? The Bell's rebels like this and this one like that. I don't like that. It's very interesting. You know saying I just want to see fellow Jews. It's a cultural thing. I know they're not from, I know there's this, but if there's a if there's a, a, a house of worship, it's a synagogue. That's said, I don't want to see churches, I don't want to see mosques. And um, so he lived in that kind of environment. It was a Jewish city. Now, today Telviv's is not like that. There plenty of areas where the Israelis have brought in all kinds of other people from elsewhere. Well, won't go into that, but I'm talking about at that time. And this is where he spent the rest of his life. Here he wrote some b- and, and published very famous things. Um, I would only call attention to a few of them. Because if you're interested, you'll go and do a little research on Ruben Margolis yourself, and you'll see it for yourself uh me myself and I, I really got to know him well when i worked for the art scroll um because i had to do the perichaelic in sanhedrin and uh that time i didn't have so many farm at hand i had some, not a lot but i had to his safety he wrote margolis and knowing what a rich material and he's a zionist right so sanhedrin is a zionist talks about a basin talks about what, what Eretz role would be like if it was under Jewish government. You know, Cheshav but in that sense, Dayonis, Sanhedrin's Melech. If you're a Frum Zionist, I mean, seriously, you know, there, there, there's a fascinating area for you. You know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Ben Noach, he has a whole book on whether the Arabs are Gertoshavs or not. Now, this kind of subject, you know, fascinate him, right? And so he published this big collection. It's not a purist, exactly. It's like a shittim of of his own. We, we showed him enachronim. I guess that's the best way to describe it. Very thorough on the whole Sanhedrin. And when I did the chilek, oh my goodness, I mean, he had everybody in there. He even had from Rabbi Rudim to my rosh yeshiva. can't believe it. I wrote a slave. And all over the place. And that's Like I said not long ago, that's why I was able to access those parts of the Torah's time that I had. And, um... It's a masterpiece. So, uh, so let me tell you something. When I was working in the art school, that book was in my hands 24-7 because he's he's the guy. Now, why did he pick Sanhedrin? For the reason I told you. Why did he do this for the whole shops? I don't know. I I strongly suspect that it's because Sanhedrin deals with sovereignty issues, national issues, malchus issues, things that somebody living in the 30s, 40s, 50s these dramatic and exciting years of Eretz Yisrael and the Jews, for better or worse, right or wrong, set up their own Malucha, you know, in, in a firm way, and not firm way, is just exciting. You see? But, that ain't all. That's one type of thing he wrote. The other thing is, the very beginning to the Zohar, this I find fascinating, because he was from Galicia, he's from Lemberg, and if it's Margulis, it should be a family. I'm not 100% sure. May I, I'll tell you where I'm going. He wrote on every subject except Hasidus and later Kabbalah, which I find interesting. He wrote my Mashal, people like that. Not have been any of the Rebbe's. And I even saw a letter from the Lubavitch Rebbe to him complaining. He said, Listen, you're a Gaudziana. This was the Lubavitch Rebbe. He says You're a Gaudziana. You must come from a Hasidic background. How come you never talk about Chassid? Why do you only talk about Avon Ben Arambam? You write biography. You write excellent biographies of Baba Chacham. They're great. Why don't do not you do anybody? You do know, like the Baal Shantam or something like that. Um, no, he didn't. That speaks a lot to me. He didn't want to do it. You see, it's not who he was, because he's a Haredi masculine, and he's interested in the. I can't again. I say for a hundred times. Very from No question about that. Uh, and the Bible sure, he liked him <laughs> right you look at the letters but he he has that masculine sensibility he's not Hasidic right? he's not Hasidic uh, he'd rather write a bit he, mm-hmm. uh, here's a classic book from him HaRambam HaZohar okay HaRambam ve I mean uh, what, and, and the point is to compare uh, statements you find in the Zohar identical to what you find in the kiss Ramam. you have to know the whole Rambam by heart you have to know the whole Zohar by heart he did but why didn't he do a Rambam of Habesht or something like that? You know what I mean? The, the Rambam fascinates him and and, and the Hasidic not. It's just, it's just interesting. Similarly, and I find this very fascinating, he clearly knew Zohar, Sefer, Habohir, the earlier layer of, of, of Kabbalistic literature, um, amazingly. Better than probably almost anybody else. Because this is what interested him. And he wrote these very, very wonderful and useful things called the uh, Chote HaZohar. I have it, you know. So he has the text of the Zohar, but on the side are like these footnotes uh, in which he brings... How should I describe it? I would say it's something along the lines of a um, Torah Shleiman reverse. Imagine if at the top is the Zohar, and underneath are all the Makhoris the Zohar... I wouldn't say got it from, but say the same thing or something parallel or something different in Rishonim, anybody. So if you're a scholar, I mean, let's put it this way. Who can do this? So he's uh, incredible. Uh, Sefer Abol here, he put out like that. Uh, he did the Tikkuni Zohar, like that. He did the Zorah like that. Now, that means he's an unbelievable in Kabbalah. But he didn't. As far as I know, and I asked a friend of mine in, in town who knows all this stuff, no Shaver, he's the bucky in this business. He didn't write anything on Kiss Me, you know. Later things, certainly not on the, the Tanya, or on uh, you know the Hasidic, or on um, you know what I mean, Masiel charm, that Lutato. There's a first layer. I suspect again, this the the This is just my opinion. At the time we're talking about. Uh, the scholars were just starting to uh, discover and, and try to, um, uh, uh, what should I say, um, make heads or tails from a secular perspective of the Zohar. You understand? Like, who wrote it? Is it real? Is it fake? All that stuff that's famous in the scholarly world. Uh, Gershom Sholem, the famous uh, professor, or maybe infamous professor, and people like that. So, since the professor world was into this, he's going to be into it. But they come from a non-from and an anti-from perspective. He's going to bust them and show them from a from perspective. That's who he was, right? And so somebody will say, well, this guy faked this this part in Zohar. And then he'll come and say, oh, really? Well, look at this McCarver he got it from over here and this over here. And you see, it's not a fake. You know, that's exactly the style of, of, uh, what's his name? Of uh, Margolis, of Ruben Margolis. And to this day, as many people know, there's plenty of uh, professors and academics and junk like that that stole his from his notes and wrote their dissertations and books on that because why not? You know what I'm saying? This is how uh this is how they uh they did it. Matter of fact, in my opinion, I'm gonna share with you this. This is a reason for a very famous and interesting incident. Um, because there was a professor, Gershom Schollner who was a professor of Kabbalah stuff at the Hebrew U he kind of invented the academic field more or less and he was like the professor he was like this if you mean, don't say shits was a Shabtai tzvi. now the, the, the firm said oh no it's not true he'll, he'll say ah you're all wrong and so when he and he was a big deal because he was a professor at Hebrew University he's supposed to know and all that stuff especially he's talking about shabtau, Shabtai Zvi which who even knows that stuff so Gershon Shalom knows it. You know what I mean? He he made his career from studying heresy. That's I'm serious. That's not a joke. So when he published this, um, the firm all blew up. But he's not Gershem. But the Margolis, he, I'm River Margolis wrote a, a whole pamphlet, very interesting and very harifist the way his style is. And I think it's called Sebas Hig So, Shal Yaakov Emden LeYon I think that's the title. And basically, he said like this. You know the real reason Ryakto and was against the samples like this, not cause not because was a shop that chicken because he wasn't. What's the reason? Because back and I don't know if you guys listened to all my podcasts, but the, one of the famous cases, the time of Chacham Khan was with the chicken without the heart. Remember that? You know, the lady brought a chicken but didn't have a heart. Or am I wrong, or did it have a heart? And obviously involving Hokus Trefus. So, um no, if you say it had a heart but it got lost, that's one thing. If you say it didn't have a heart, then it's am to so anyway, um, so that was a, a a big argument around the year seventeen ten, approximately, between the, and everybody kicked in on it. And one of the two two of the bar pluktos were Ya um, ja, uh, Chacham Zvi, who famously said that, that obviously it had a heart, it, it got lost, and uh, David Oppenheimer, Prague, who uh, opposed him. And if I remember correctly, I don't have it in front of me. It's a very it's I had it in the photostat somewhere. So Ruben Margolis will have a whole thing. He'll say like this: When Rabbi Yonassim was young, and he was a genius already, so he supported the anti-chachamcy position. You see, and he like busted the chachamcy or some, something along those lines. And um, and Yaakov M'den, who was the only one, never forg- forgave him for that. And therefore, years later, he accused him be Tzvi. Now that's a classic Ruben Margolis thing. Who remembers that? You know, was one of the many people signed on this bar plucked to that bar plucked to on the chicken and the heart issue. And uh, who can tell? Too, you know what I mean, that that's the reason 20, 30 years later, you had the controversy, and so on and so forth. And I remember Gershwin like responded to him, uh, which is interesting because usually he wasn't generous to anybody. But I'm convinced, even the professors, they all stole from him, from Margolis' works. And therefore, again, you know, they felt a certain, uh, what's the right word? Uh, guilty conscience. You you can't treat him like a nobody because you steal from his footnotes. So uh, I'm just taking you to a world of yesterday that didn't exist, doesn't exist much anymore. does to some degree, but you'd have to go to Israel to find these type of people. I'm serious. And you'd have to hang around the Hebrew University. There you still find a few people of this type um, in there. Uh, It's not a big breed. And he has this wonderful book, uh, the, what do you call it, on the Sefer Chasidim, that a lot of people use. It was which he does the same thing. He goes through the Sefer Chasidim. There's two versions of it. He does I forget which version. I have it, and uh, he usually sell, most of them so with the chida on the bottom and the and the margol and the margolis. And again, there's all these marmakumas. This was a type of scholarship that I don't know how to describe it because I don't want to be cruel. Um. I don't mean think bad by it at all. People put years and years and sweat of their lives into these things, and um, and then the internet rendered it all uh, superfluous. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, how should anybody know the twenty first century, would, first century, would turn out like that? He's from the door that people spend their whole lives writing concordances, which are great. We used to have them 30 volumes in Hebrew college. You know, the concordance of every expression in the Mishnah, the Tosefta. The Yushalmi, and the Rambam, uh, any word you want, where it's found, and here and there and the other. Now, in the internet, you do it a drop. Any, any anybody can do it. Any, any fool can do it. Drop a hat. You know what You want to know how many times in the Mishnah Torah it says the word ani? You know, you can you, you can find it in a second. These people, like Margozium, they're from the old school where they knew they memorize whole Zohar, memorized whole Rambam, memorize whole Yushalmi, and they use that unbelievable kachzikarim to put these things out. So, if you were a scholar from my father's generation, you know, or when I was young, uh, you had to rely on, you know, th- th- this, this is what you relied on, unless you yourself were like a walking of or something like that, which nobody is, hardly. And so, this is not a regular bookseller, and this is not a regular librarian, because I'm describing a person whose career was that of chief librarian. This ain't a chief librarian. Chief librarian <coughs> is moving books around and classifying them, which he could do. Better than anybody. Um, And I remember, you know, he made a statement. Let me remember now. He put in the Torah department, he put all the Hasidic literature, so he knows that it's all part of Torah. And the other stuff he put in, I think, I think the uh, Bible criticism, something like that, Zohar criticism, he put with the Christian books or something. (laughs) He wanted to make his statements. Now, the tragedy of his life is, you know, he was a lonely man, He he didn't have any children. Um, but he was not lonely in the sense he was all surrounded by people who uh were pumping him. But you wanna know something you want to be pumped. Agree? If you know all this and you're from God and and you like to spread the Torah knowledge and you and you have a, a sense of self worth. You have a sense of you know you have a healthy ego, and nothing wrong with that's a good it's a healthy thing, not an unhealthy thing. Then exactly what you want is you want to be pumped. The Gemara said that, the, you know, I forget the expression, the cow wants to get milk more than you want to milk it. That's who he was. And um, by the time he was an old man, when he died. But the library's still there today. And I think it's probably online. And most people don't know exist if you're not an Israeli scholar or something like that. But those of you who are living in Israel, and those of you who visit Israel after the corona is over, you ever go to Tel Aviv, check out the Rambam Library. It's like a personal uh, a tribute to uh, Ruben Margolius. And um, if you're ever living in Sanhedrin, it'll never go out of use. They recently republished it, you now for the 20th time. I was in the bookstore the other day. It's not much better printing, I mean, you know, than the old printing, but it's a brand new printing, on the Margossium. We could use a Margolius in every Mesech Shas. Unfortunately, that's not the direction he went. Had he been not a pazran, somebody who spreads, you know, his his kochus in a hundred directions. Brilliantly, but a hundred directions. Had he been a uh, razan, person who concentrates, I wish he would have done this, but it's easy for me to talk. Uh, imagine if he would have put out a margolasium on every mishap in Charles. He could have pulled it off, but he would have to be like Steinsdorf, a monomaniac. You have to devote your whole life to one to one big project. Uh, so I, I've i raised, uh, in the discussion of margolasium, Uh, existential large issues that come with total literature. And we we have a a, a wonderfully complex and wide literature. But my time is up. And so with that, I'll close the day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot